All right, ready? Yeah, let's do this. I'm Andy. And I'm Lev. They, them pronouns. And this is Snakes Snakes in in the the Garden, Garden, our first episode. Welcome. We're going to start with a legendary anecdote, and I'm going to put my readers on because I'm over 50. This is about the famous sword master who wrote the Book of Five Rings, uh, Miyamoto Musashi, sitting Zazen with Takawan Soho. Once upon a time, the legendary swordsman Miyamoto Musashi was practicing Zazen beside a stream with his lifelong friend and mentor, Zen master, Takawan Soho. Suddenly, he became aware of another presence nearby. From the corner of his eye, he saw a deadly viper slithering into the clearing toward Takawan. Knowing that the slightest movement might frighten the venomous snake into attacking his friend, Musashi kept watching the serpent in utter stillness. When Takawan himself became aware of the snake's presence, a faint smile appeared on his face. The snake came toward him and peacefully crawled across his thighs. The serpent continued on its course toward Musashi. Several feet away, sensing Musashi's presence, he recoiled, preparing to attack, but suddenly scurried away into the bushes. Musashi had not moved. His fierce spirit, undisturbed by the threat of the viper, was so palpable that the snake had speedily moved away in flight. Most men would be proud to possess such an intimidating aura, but Musashi felt only shame as he suddenly understood his own greatest shortcoming. What troubles you? asked Takawan. All my life, I have trained myself to develop such skill that no man would ever dare attack me. Now that I've reached my goal, all sentient beings instinctively fear me. You saw how the snake fled from me. I saw it. Since it dared not attack you, you defeated it without striking a blow. And because of that, both the snake and you are alive now. Why does that sadden you? Because I am so strong that no one can ever go close to me. I can never have true peace. Musashi pointed a finger at the priest. Not like you, he said with admiration. You did not fear the snake, nor did the snake fear you. Your spirit is so calm, so natural, that the snake treated you no differently than the rocks or the trees or the wind. People accept you that way too. Takawan smiled and resumed his zazen. Musashi spent the last years of his life cultivating Haijoshin the state of mind demonstrated by Master Takuan. Or the state of mind demonstrated by Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics, or the state of mind that is acquired from John Kabat-Zinn in his curriculum. The state of mind that's available to all of us when our priority and responsibility is self-regulation and peace without letting the outside world regulate our state. This doesn't mean the abandonment of responsibility to observe surroundings. It doesn't mean to dismiss things that are important to pay attention to. It means that you are responsible at all times for your emotional state. And that's what Snakes in the Garden is about, because they're always around. Lev and I have a long history of being in gardens with snakes in a variety of settings, professional settings and personal settings. One of the things that brought us together was the need that we observed in all of the social media content 
Not enough people seem to be talking about the responsibility, the true responsibility, for all of us to get better at the one thing that we can do. The one thing we can do is we can decide how what we're letting in is going to influence how we feel. That's what this is about. Uh, and as often as we can produce these episodes, we're going to wax and expound on everyone. Not that we're some Zazen routine practicers of this ourselves, but we are immersed in the study of this and how this works. And it's a wonderful opportunity to have technology and social media and people who understand how to leverage it to talk about this kind of stuff instead of the stuff that so many of us are seeing. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned people as well because uh, the core of this for me is that is relationships. I think relationships are the most powerful thing you can experience. Uh, there's been lots of research about people who are dying and talking to those people on their deathbed, asking them like, what are your regrets? What are you most proud? What are you most happy of? Strangely enough, nobody died wishing they'd spent more time at their job. People died wishing that they'd spent more time with their families, wishing that they'd apologize for fucked up things that they did, wishing that they were more honest in their relationships, that they'd told their friends they loved them. What I would hope to cultivate is a space where we can learn to develop those relationships to be more honest with other people by being more honest within ourselves. Um, and, you know, speaking of snakes, of course, there's there's always the exogenous stimuli, right? There's the bullshit that's going on around you. There's the problems, there's the threats, but there's also the ways that those fears manifest within yourself. Like we all have our own snakes. And I see many people being oblivious to the snakes and experiencing harm. I see many people wanting to roll around in them wanting to roll around in them put oh, them on yeah. me oh this is fantastic sure yeah the the prop the hot takes i'm a i'm a i'm a hot take master myself actually i love rolling around we don't need to get started on my hedonism this early um but also trying to eliminate the snakes right to kill every snake that they see to have complete and total mastery over all of the snakes in the same way that they might want to uh suppress or eliminate their emotional responses. Or to kill them all. Yeah. And, and uh, set out bait and traps and poison in the idea that this beautiful garden can be maintained and keep them at bay like we're building a moat around ourselves. The yeah. allegory from Musashi perfectly describes what happens when we engender awareness of our own ability to dissuade contact when we present an affect that's unapproachable or intimidating and i know many men who have acquired this over long-standing careers doing work where that kind of affect development is natural and has a direct relationship to that work these are people generally speaking who have very difficult time managing relationships with others. This is this phenomena, this allegory is not just a piece of ancient literature. This this is happening every day in our corrections communities and our law enforcement communities and our public safety communities and with people who come into contact with bizarre or limbic hijacking situations on a regular basis. People can become very good at regulating their environment 
in an attempt to regulate emotional state. And there's a price for that that Musashi points out in the allegory. The price is, I've acquired this state and now I can't get close to anybody because no one wants to, not even this venomous snake wants to come close to me. How the hell did you just do that, Takawan? I want to do that. This comes from the baddest guy that ever lived. And, arguably. Yeah, arguably. And Musashi was no joke. Routinely tested himself. Routinely sought out contests to test his skill and ability to stay focused and deliver highly technical work with swords. This is a guy who discovered at the end of that part of his journey, he didn't want the price of all of that. He wanted to be able to do those things while having an emotional state like Takawan. There are lots of other allegories we're going to get into <laughs> in Snakes. And yeah. I'm very happy we're here to talk about it. Yeah. And it's probably a quality of all that training that he had that he was even able to recognize within himself. Oh my God, I don't want to be like this, right? Because oh, no so doubt. many people could see that situation, you know, be in the garden, watch the snake be about to attack you and then get so frightened that it runs off and feel proud, feel happy, feel delighted, feel that they'd reached the, the mastery of their life's work. And, you know, I, like you, I see that microcosmically in which, I don't know, what was the example that I wanted to give there? It kind of sounded like you were alluding to the idea of, of toxic masculinity, which is certainly not limited to men by any means and certainly not entirely reinforced by men. But that notion of, I'm going to protect myself by pushing away anyone who could possibly get close to me. Uh, and I think some of that happens. I'm not a big label user, but I would agree with the idea sure. that the phrase toxic masculinity that you're using in this context has some applicability. Because even the people who would want to pursue being around Musashi are people who want to be like that. Those are generally young people who are drawn to forced disciplines. They're drawn to the imagery of being a hero and standing alone and not needing anyone. Musashi's closest friends were more than likely his students who wanted to be like that. And we have a responsibility, particularly as teachers, to be aware of who we are in our relationship to the student. I know for me what has made me feel good and what I think and believe in my heart works is being transparent even with my own students. With being vulnerable and transparent about ongoing transformation in the journey. I can identify with the hero archetype. I can identify with the ideas of being in places where I'm not supposed to be because some noble duty or responsibility requires me to do that and that there's a noble cost associated to that of being compromised in relationships. And in my own way, arrived at the insight that Musashi did that I have a responsibility to be in the world and to do good. And I can't do that if my capacity for relationships is so compromised because I'm such a menacing, fearless hero that I can't impact the world in any kind of constructive way. The only people I impact are people who I want to be, be like me. I know for myself, I've definitely had experiences which urge me toward radical self-reliance. 
And there's quite an appeal to that, right? I can do all of this myself. I can learn how to do this and this. I can learn orienteering and I can learn bushcraft and I can learn to make this and I can learn to do this and I'm gonna do my own construction and I'm gonna fix my own car and you know, I could go on forever. And there's nothing- It's empowering too. It's really empowering and it is often I think a little bit misguided. You know, within that radical hyper individualism, the hyper focus on developing the self Certainly that can lead to a lot of powerful and empowering self-growth, but it also neglects the idea, both in an ideology and through action and practice, that there are other people around you and that you do need them. And I think it's probably only in the last five years of my life that I've believed that in a really true and deep sense. That's heavy. Yeah, and it's it's not just that I need, you know, I can't become a master of all disciplines. I'm going to need a doctor. I'm going to need people to grow my food, right? Like those things are apparent and most people would concede. Okay, sure. In a community I need those things, but it's it's more than just that. Um humans are really social creatures. Our deepest, most innate, most powerful psychobiological drive is the drive to connect with others. We are, we are tribal, we want to form affiliations, we want to find acceptance and understanding and for people to be delighted in our presence. And to live a life that has been dedicated to overriding all of those primal and fairly healthy instincts is really terrifying. Like, what does it mean about me and what I've experienced in the world that I don't believe that I can trust other people to accept me for who I am? Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a mistake that in all of the great world religions or widely attended philosophies that death of self and service to others is the core axiom. It's That's, mm. that's no mistake. This is all existentially. And by death of self, you kind of mean ego death to some extent? Or do you yeah, mean something it, else? I certainly don't mean physical. <laughs> um, but in some religions, that is an attribute, of course. Yeah, right? but in this at this moment, the context that I'm applying to death of self is the pursuit of self-interest and rather my identity is found through selflessness and service to others. I can say for me, particularly in the past few years, I have never felt that more to be true. It's been a theme that's permeated my life while my life has been interrupted with episodes of enormous self-pursuit and self-will run riot and mess. I've never had a longer period of contentment and peace than being committed to this idea that I will fade that my family will fade, mm. that memories of me will fade. It, it has certainly helped deflate the balloon of my own sense of self-importance. And in that, I'm able to relish and cherish moments of knowing that I'm doing something incredibly meaningful or valuable in raising my children or being of service to someone with a disability that can't do something and I'm able to do that and not talk about it afterward <laughs> and use it as an opportunity to celebrate myself but rather move on to the next thing and shut up. 
uh, these practices, I think, um, can help us in our individual crafts and professions, in our relationships, wherever they may be, whether it's um, on the fire team, in the gunfight, or whether it's in a care and services discipline when you're being presented with challenging situations from people served. Relationship and selflessness, I don't know what the downside is yet when done right. I just don't. Mm -hmm. Here's a fun question, maybe. How would you define selflessness? How do you know what that is and what that isn't? I can just tell you what it, what it means to me. Okay. I have shown myself and others around me a capacity that selfness can often result in outcomes that cost others something. Well, let's back up now. What do you mean by selfness? The opposite of selflessness. Well, okay, we can't define something by its opposite here. All right. Welcome back. We burned one. We're smokers. My kids um, harp on me about smoking. Do they? What do they say? Any convincing Stop, arguments? Dad. Stop, Dad. Yeah. How do you Stop, feel when Dad. you hear that? Because you're smirking right now. Um, I've stopped plenty of other things that uh -huh. allow me to enable justification to hold on to this one for a little while longer. <laughs> So, we can't we'll abandon all our vices. I mean, <laughs> shit. There's only so many good things left in this world. Do Maybe. You, uh, do you want to stop smoking? Like, is that an active desire that you possess? So, um, funny in, story. In, in the spirit of what we've been talking about, never before have I felt enough capacity as I do now to do harder and harder things in the context and category of sacrifice for someone else mm -hmm. than I feel like I have the capacity today. I have a blessing of love in my life with family and friends. I feel more capable of doing things sacrificially and not being afraid of the discomfort in my early 50s and in a way where I know I, I don't have to look back. I stopped drinking for that. Um, right. This is important context. So Andy is sober and has been sober for three almost three years, years now. Coming and up on the anniversary. My drinking was never catastrophic. It had some very unpleasant, episodic outcomes, but it didn't result in a DUI. It didn't result in the loss of a job. It didn't result in a car accident, but it resulted in relationship damage. Yeah. I was given the blessing of the opportunity to uh, to arrest that before it got worse. Uh, it was certainly tracking to be all of those, all of those things. And I'm not trying to turn this into a, a recovery speech. I, <laughs> I I am going to say this though. Never before have I been more willing to endure the personal discomfort and sometimes torment mentally of abandoning certain ways of thinking and doing as a gesture of love. There was a time that I would not have been able to do that not long ago. Hmm. Would not have had the awareness, capacity, willingness to even do it. I like movie references a lot <laughs> and I I like the movie Roadhouse. Oh my god, I was just thinking about with Patrick about Swayze for so a couple of for a couple of reasons, and I use 
elements of that movie in what I do to help illustrate some talking points. But there's a scene in which Dalton, who's the character played by Patrick Swayze, is in an ER getting stapled from a knife cut. Talk about hero archetypes over here. Right. And he's got his arm up in the air, and he's going to get a laceration stapled over here. He's also flirting with the hot doctor. Yeah, 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 yeah. he is. He is, that's true. (laughs) And uh, she's commenting on his graduate degree in philosophy, yada, yada, yada. And she said, you don't want a local? And he said, pain doesn't hurt. Even when I was fully immersed in being a hero, and being Batman was my favorite superhero, by the way. I love Batman. Batman doesn't have a lot of relationships, by the way. Um, He's a capitalist. If any of us are rich enough, we can become Batman. Elon Musk, basically Batman. Like. (laughs) Right, so back to what I was saying. Um, I loved that moment in the movie. And for me, the pursuit of getting to a state where I'm unafraid of discomfort has been uh, a journey I have enjoyed being on because I have moments now where I feel I can do that. I'm going to put myself through this. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's not going to hurt. And even if it does hurt, I know I'm going to get to the other side of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I do that for someone else, having the capacity to do that is really mastery of something internal. Mm -hmm. And empowers me to feel secure in a world where we are surrounded with so much insecurity things that can create insecurity. I have, and I know others too, have these moments now where fear is not is not something that gets in the way of what needs to be done. Thank you for sharing, thank you for sharing your personal story, as, especially as I didn't share much of it, but yeah, I, I don't mind, there'll, there'll be more. I'm oh, not I afraid mean, to talk about you, it. I've, you've lived long enough, you know, to have story. And I think the, the story that you get to hold is one of the greatest products of a human life, right? Like at the end of the day, what you are left with is the quality of actions that you have taken and the experiences that you have had. And when you're talking about core values, like did those actions live up to your values? Did you, were you brave enough to step up and become the person that you wanted to be? And it feels so good. It, it feels does. so good yeah. when we know that we've done that. And you you were talking about we, we, we derailed to take a break from the discussion of selfishness versus selfness or self. What did I say? Self- I just used uh, that m- word used in that the word. moment, selfness. I liked how you kind of elaborated that maybe un- on that unintentionally, right? Like there's this idea of pain and the experience thereof and the avoidance thereof. I would probably roll my eyes at a man in the ER who didn't want to take a local anesthetic to have staples put in. Um, right. Right. Right, um, right, right. But at this, we're talking about a movie, right? And there's other, there's other senses where that's really, really deeply relevant. So I like to see pain as information. Pain is knowledge. Pain is something, a story that your body is telling you about what it needs or wants or doesn't want or so on and so forth. It's for me very closely linked to desire and I don't mean that in a weird way. They are two knife points of the same weapon. What drives you towards something versus what drives you away from something. And they're both really important to keep aware of. I think I've told 
you about this before, but there is a Buddhist tale that I wish I'd pulled up, and maybe I will here in a moment, about like letting the arrow pierce you twice. How does that happen when How it's only shot happen? once? Say, yeah, arrow gets shot once, pierces twice. <laughs> Bullshit. And I encountered this tale as told to me. You know, stuff shows up when you need it sometimes, and I'm grateful for that. But the idea of letting the arrow pierce you twice. So an arrow is shot, it pierces your skin. That is the arrow piercing you once, and it hurts. It's going to hurt, right? If you let the arrow pierce you twice, uh, the way that that can happen is, one, you anticipate the blow of the arrow. You see that there is pain coming for you. You flinch. You are anxious. You experience fear or apprehension. All those things are really natural, but of course they don't avoid the consequence of what you know is about to occur, nor are they necessarily helpful tools in navigating the circumstance when it does. It's still information, like, oh, an arrow's about to hit me. Okay, but if you spend your life in anticipation of all the arrows that will hit you, you will not live a true life. So that's one way of letting the arrow pierce you twice. God, you're gonna love what I do with this. Oh, yeah, go on. The second way, and I'll keep this short so that you have your time. The second way is lingering and brooding on the pain of the arrow that has just hit you. You have a pain that you've experienced. You do not let it go. You simmer on it. You let it fester. You All you can think about is how much that that thing hurt. And this came to me most powerfully in taking my first motorcycle ride on the back of a friend's motorcycle. Uh, because for me, there was that immediate moment of, holy shit, I could die at any moment. Like if we just tipped four more <coughs> inches that way on that curve, we would have wiped out and I would have been a smear on the fucking pavement. And I realized like over the course of this ride, I remembered this tale and I was thinking, this is not wise mind, Lev. Like you are letting the arrow pierce you twice. You being afraid of hitting the ground will not stop you from hitting the ground. If you are gonna do that, that is gonna happen. And it was 100% out of my control. I mean, I could have tapped and I could have been like, can I please get off, right? So yeah, within the course of that, I like really came to terms with that idea of, of trying not to live in anxiousness or reflection of the fear, the death, the pain that awaits you. In, in doing so, you transmute pain into suffering. That is like a core Buddhist principle. Pain is pain on its own. Avoiding pain creates suffering. Brooding on pain creates suffering. You're cracking your knuckles. You are wiggling in I'm, your I'm motherfucking I'm ready to go. I'm seat. ready to go. All right, talk so, to me, brother. To your second piercing, this is what was coming up in my gut as you're describing the second piercing of the arrow. Mm-hmm. Um, in force training, for many years now, we have been using products like simunitions, which enable very practical training of gunfights and surviving gunfights that allows an experience, certainly not to the extent where lead is entering your body, but an experience of being hit with a projectile and having to manage firearms manipulations, tactics, strategy, under conditions of physical limbic system hijack. Simunitions have allowed people to survive injuries. People have died from less than lethal injury because of the experience psychologically of the injury. Right, yeah. Simunitions has allowed people to understand through knowledge that they can stay in the gunfight, hit, and still do the job they need to do, which is to protect others, protect themselves, etc. There are many, many anecdotes of police officers who have survived 
lethal force encounters because of simunition training. How does that go to the second piercing? The capacity that one might have to brood over the bad news or the near miss or the life-threatening thing has been replaced with knowledge that they need not do that mm -hmm. and that they can let that go and anticipate an outcome and the tools to let that go. Oh, I think, yeah, most of us probably recognize that we should not brood on that thing and that we could let our suffering right. go, right? And now there's, tan there's been tangible training designed to get you past that thinking moment to a vision of survivability. I can survive this. What I've been hit with is less than lethal. I have at least five minutes before my blood loss or my uh, accelerated respiration or... Uh, or my physicality is going to be compromised. In the next five minutes, here's what I can do. Learning in the physical to inform the mental. And when I think about the first piercing is anticipation. And I had the good fortune of being on the staff of an Olympic archery coach for 15 years. And one of the reasons he was sought out from all over the world because of his expertise on an area a problem area we know in archery, which we describe tar uh, with the words target panic. Hmm. The way target panic looks is when someone has constructed a bow shot and the goal of this shot is to deliver an arrow to a place we want it to go. The archer comes apart in anticipation of the explosion of the bow hmm. and the arrow never goes where they want it to go because they weren't able to do anything under control anymore. Hmm. The way that we solve that problem in bow shots is the anticipation of the execution is replaced with anticipation of a part of the shot process in time that takes longer to get to than the back of the arrow to get hmm. off the bow. So instead of thinking that the bow shot ends at explosion, what we now know is the bow shot ends with the arrow hitting the target or the sound of the bow going off or the feeling of touching the shoulder because anticipation is something that we all have. We're going to do it. But isn't it interesting that we have a capacity to change what we want to anticipate? Hmm. That's what I was isn't thinking that of. Funny? Yeah. Hmm. And, That's and, beautiful. And look what Lev is reading. Uh, this is Zen in the Art of Archery. My, my favorite books. And yeah, I brought this, um, so this is recommended to me by Andy and given to me by Andy. Thank you, Andy, doubly. I don't remember what we were talking about, but I think I was talking about um, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. You were, uh, hands down. Yeah, yeah, which is very definitively one of my favorite books. I read it maybe 10 years ago, maybe more, and liked it, but didn't quite get it. It wasn't written for me at that point. And I very recently acquired a motorcycle. And I was like, you know, maybe it's maybe it's time that I revisit that. I'm also garnering an interest in Buddhism. Like it was related. I was like, okay, maybe I can I can access this now. Reread it. Holy shit, it was so powerful. Maybe we'll delve into that and Book of Five Rings in some future episodes. Love it. Love the idea. Where are the quotes that I found from this though? Um, mm. One of them related to what you were just saying, uh, and this is a quote within the book from what is called the great doctrine of archery. Mm. And what it says is that, quote, archery is still a matter of life and death 
to the extent that it is a contest of the archer with himself. And this contest is not a paltry substitute, but the foundation of all contests that are outwardly directed. Oh, yeah. For example, with a bodily opponent. And it goes on, but I won't. Isn't it amazing that these themes, we, you, to our listeners, you've probably heard this idea expressed differently. Isn't it amazing that through the ages we keep as a people circling back to this responsibility that internal change, the thing we can control, is the thing that works. Mm-hmm. And it this, precedes all external changes, and it, it must. Yes, yeah. yes. Be the change you want to see. Mm-hmm. Who said that? Be the change you want to see. Mahatma. Steve Irwin? Yeah. Woody, Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah. Gandhi said it. Gandhi, uh-huh. And it was expressed differently through the ages before him. He would be the first guy to say, this was. This is not my novel idea. Yeah. This is, since time immemorial, this idea of the world becomes a better place by you becoming a better person. And unfortunately, we don't see a lot of people. There are a lot of snakes around. We don't see a lot of people working real hard on being better people. Or at least the optics would suggest that that's not going on. We believe that it's it is going on. It's hard out here. It's hard out here. It is hard out here. Think, and the conditions yeah. are, are becoming such that the whole idea of suspending that for a moment because I have to deal with becoming better at regulating self so I better equip myself to help with problems in the world is no different than the oxygen mask being put on yourself before you help put it on another person when it comes out of the airplane. Well, it's like you said, what has brought you to the space where you can be vulnerable and you can be selfless and you can do difficult things and engage in them and challenge yourself and challenge your beliefs and give up things, you know, make sacrifices and become a better person. It's your relationships. It's your love. Like there are things that carry It is you. love. At the end of the day, I think that's that's where it stops. And that enable you to make those choices. And so, you know, you, you've got to examine why do I want to do this? What's going to motivate me to do this? Because a lot of self-work is hard. Oh. We're not we're not arguing that it's that it's easy and that you just need like a magical solution to be able to engage in it, right? It's challenging and I think we are often like so very predisposed to witness what other people are doing that sucks. It's that shitty driver over there. It was this person that started to argue with me. It's the way that they said it, you know. Mm. It, it, it there is a first of all there's a lack of a, an emphasis on what is my accountability what is my responsibility what can I do differently like we don't even want to look at that we want to say fuck this guy should go to therapy am yeah. I in therapy I am in therapy but right we, we don't we don't start that target at ourselves and actually one of my favorite web comics that I reference a lot is just a little four panel thing it's this tiny little guy he's like running through a little cave Indiana Jones style Four panels, you see him running in the cave. There's a big altar in front of him and it's glowing. And the caption says, finally, I found it. The scroll that can speak only truth. And the little man unrolls the scroll on the next slide. And the scroll says, some of your problems are your fault. And he just shucks it across the room <laughs> like his life's work. He's just like, I fucking hate this. Some of your problems are your fault. Oh, gosh. Um, I know. It's a, it's a hitter. It's a hard one. And I don't think I've ever been in a situation that wasn't at least partially made better. 
by me acknowledging, maybe not fault, maybe not responsibility, like those words get thrown a lot around a lot, but by pausing and saying, what can I do differently here? What can, what can, what can I do? I want 4,000 things from the person in front of me. I want them not to be yelling. I want them not to punch me in the face. I want them to understand my point of view. I want them to care about my feelings, you know, whatever. I want a lot of things. Some of those, most of those are probably out of my control and a sphere of power that I will never cease to occupy is the control over myself and how I choose to react. Yeah. There are other spheres of power that I may choose to occupy at a given moment, right? Like in a situation where I want something. There's like, technical skill speaking, vocabulary. People who use my wife, oh God, the first thing that she does when she does not like how I'm speaking to her uh -oh, is to remind to me that my capacity for more words than her means nothing. And if there are two people on planet Earth who can disarm me with me because they know, and I'll reveal right now, if I cave to the impulse to over-influence or overpower someone, the way I talk can change. My word choices are designed to, to communicate their complexity and sophistication more than the other person to remove their dignity. My wife and daughter get hip to that shit with me fast. And when they see that I'm doing that, like, and God forbid they're together and they see me Ooh. doing it. I, it's just, it's, it's like getting beat up, just, just doubled over. Like uh, they, they, they've, they've caught my hand. Uh, my hand is in the cookie jar. They caught me red handed, knock it off because we don't know as many words as you and can't string together sentences as quickly as you doesn't mean shit. This is what you're doing right now. You're not hearing us. Um, and then I have to back up real quick. Um, <laughs> they have a, a capacity for that that's amazing. I fight like you fight. Yeah. That, that's why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> we, so, we both fight dirty over here. Yeah. Um, I got, you know, and I don't, I was just about to say, man, not a lot of people in this world can call me out when I'm doing that. So I think it is such a blessing that you have those people in your life. First, that is such a blessing to have motherfuckers who will call you on your bullshit. Yeah. That is one of the purest, truest blessings of all that people can say, you know what? I love you and you're fucking up. That yeah. is not a lot of people will say that. Sometimes people will just 86 you. But um, yeah, I got called out recently by someone I don't know very well. And I was really proud of them and the way that they handled it and the grace that which that they arrived at that. Um, I was at a social gathering and I was talking to someone I didn't know about... Um, cultural appropriation. And I will not get into the weeds of this argument, but we were having a, how will you call this, civil discussion about this issue, um, where we both occupied philosophically different points and both mutually agreed to play devil's advocate in order to broaden our philosophical horizons. And as you might imagine- Not to see who would win? Oh, I wanted to win. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I didn't. I think the interest of broadening philosophical horizons is is good. Yeah, and I won't say I wouldn't say win in this circumstance because neither of us wanted the other to take a different action than we were taking. Okay, we, we both occupied different positions, but it was kind of like ah, I think your position's sort of shit. Mm -hmm. It was it was that kind of thing, and so we were talking about this, and we had a captive audience who were observing us and. I didn't notice this within myself, but my 
my tensions were getting high, but someone else next to me noticed. And I, and what, what they said was, hey, wait a minute, like before another idea is raised, I wanna call pause to this. I wanna remind us all that we are here in community. And they did some hokey shit. They were like, can we please all link hands? And I was like, yeah, I don't wanna link my hand with nobody no, else. No, but it was a ritual to remind to what remind comes us first. Why we were there, what we were talking about, because of course we're talking about essentially, how do you respect other cultures? And how, what shape should that respect take when you believe that you are sacrificing yourself and your own culture to do so? Mm. It was kind of the core of that argument. What, what, what level of self-sacrifice is appropriate because it is harmful to someone else? Mm. Um, what's the root of that? And it was an interesting discussion, but my friend was like, hey, wait a minute, like take my hand. And they said what I would basically equate to like a prayer. They were like, we're in community. We're here on this land. We're trying to make something together. We're doing that because we care about each other. And I'm not saying that you guys aren't acting in accordance with care for one another, but I just want to pause to remind us that we should hold that in our discussions. God, and They that's did powerful. it with such grace that yeah. I was immediately shamed. I was like, wow, I'm being yeah. an asshole. Yeah. If they, if they looked me in the face and they were like, Lev, you're kind of being an asshole, I'd be like, <laughs> I know. But they, they shut me right down because i not I to go down it. this road yeah. but that this idea that you've just shared is the basis of all meaningful de-escalation and right. that is the context where lev and i met and we will be spending a lot of time getting into that on snakes in the garden but this mm -hmm. idea of centering and identifying the priority and doing it in a the way that's non-offensive. Yes. The common goals. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, the, and implicitly there is the reminder of like, because I believe if I want you to understand me, it's my responsibility to first reach out and try to understand you. Yep. You are not going to come over to my side if I just start raging in and I beat you into submission. And who wrote that in a prayer? Help me to understand rather than be understood. I don't know. St. Francis of Assisi. Oh, I know that. Yeah. Come on. Oh, look who can string a sentence together over here. <laughs> Tough guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's, that's kind of the whole point, which, you know, my approach wasn't incorrect. Right? I was still right. Let me, let me just put that out there. I was still right. <laughs> Andy rolls his eyes. Um, but my approach was leaning into the wrong. I had lost sight of the idea of being curious about what the other person brought to that discussion and has, was delving too deeply into like, here's why you need to come over to this side. And retrospectively, I think that was appropriate. However, it was not about to get me to what my goal was, which hopefully was mutual understanding and compassion or community building. It was just gonna make someone bow to my power. And if I see, and this is just a perspective, this is not a truth, but if I see that person's idea that is contrary to mind as a snake, what do I do about that snake? You went, you went right to where I wanted and you to go. And even further, what is making me see this as a snake in the first place, right? Like just because I hold a belief that is different than someone that doesn't mean that their opposing belief is a snake. Sometimes it might be, sometimes it might be. Does it sound, so here's a snake that's not out of the bush yet. Okay. 
Here, here's there's something that's in the bush. Play is, the flute is to it, the snake. Right? Is it hissing? Uh-huh. Is it a snake? Could it be something else? Let's get it out here in the day in the in the open mm-hmm. and see what this is. Snakes in the garden. There there are lots of them. Um, we are going to tackle some tough issues in subsequent episodes. We're going to talk about crisis intervention and de-escalation by public safety professionals, mobile crisis teams, and everyday people. We're going to talk about the events that are polarizing so many people in public spaces about masks and vaccines and um, how to navigate those difficult conversations. We know a lot of people and we move in a lot of circles and we do a lot of work that we feel is very meaningful in helping people get to this place of self-regulation and being focused on core values that enable relationships. We hope that you'll join us and stay with us. Um, and maybe next time we'll get more into our background. But I think we, I think it would behoove us to talk really briefly about who we are. Okay. Yeah. I'll do let's it. let's do a little of that. I'll do and it. Let's maybe close with a quote, perhaps. I love it. What do you think about that? I love it. Our okay. style is extemporaneous. It's not scripted. You're watching it as it happens. Unfortunately, we have uh, a rough outline, but then we riff. Um, my dad was a world-class jazz improviser. That's who, who I am. I'm an improviser of thought and an improviser of language and an improviser of action within a particular musical construct. I don't try to play jazz, classical, blues all at the same time. But if I'm playing jazz, I'm creating. Um, we're creating. Agreed. Uh, to end on a quote. In talking it over with Mr. Comaccia, I once asked him why the master had looked on so long at my futile attempts, futile efforts to draw the bow spiritually, why he had not insisted on the correct breathing from the start. A great master, he replied, must also be a great teacher. With us, the two things go hand in hand. Had he begun lessons with breathing exercises, he would never have been able to convince you that you owe them anything decisive. You had to suffer shipwreck through your own efforts before you were ready to seize the life belt he threw you. Believe me, I know from my own experience that the master knows you and each of his pupils much better than we know ourselves. He reads in the souls of his pupils more than they care to admit. And presumably you have people in your life that you read that way and see that way. Lev and I certainly do. We have some experience and mastery in some of these areas that we want to share, and we look forward to doing that with you. Awesome. All the best. Thanks for joining us.